0: We'll read from uh, Psalm 119:33 to 40. It's in the handout there, starting at 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of Your statutes, and I will keep it to the to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in you, or a delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise, that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness. Give me life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Matt. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Just a reminder to you all, and especially for visitors, um, we are currently in a series right now here at Grace Valley where we are basically wrestling with how do you take the gospel, this message, Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. That's the gospel message. There's other ways to say it. That's one way of saying it. It's a way I like to say it. How do you take that gospel message and actually work it out in your day-to-day life as a Christian. And we've been making our way through different areas of uh, of importance and concern. And this morning, we're going to talk about the law. And just a reminder to you that uh, if you want to ask a question at the end of the message, uh, there'll be a time, hopefully, for uh, a little bit of Q&A. If you have questions that you want to ask, you can text them to me. My number's in the bulletin there under the sermon. You can also raise your hand. That's fine as well. But we're talking about the, the law. If you read through the Bible, and you don't even have to be very familiar with the Bible to know this about the Bible. Uh, you discover that it is full of rules, The Bible is full of rules. There are prohibitions about what you can't do. There are commands about what you're supposed to do. It all seems very bossy, actually. Do this. Don't do that. Keep this get rid of that. You have the Ten Commandments, which we read, that's one summary of it. Then you have the Sermon on the Mount and the New Testament. You get to the New Testament, you think, okay, we're finally done with all these laws and rules and stuff because, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he kind of was very stern and he wanted to make sure people were doing the right thing and living the right way. Let's get to the New Testament, the good stuff, where Jesus comes and he's all about love and kindness and gentleness. And, And then he sits down and he preaches the sermon on the on the mount which basically says you thought that the 10 commandments were tough you had no idea let me explain to you what they're really saying and things just get worse in a sense for some people all this law stuff all these rules is it's bad uh, you know as someone who gets the opportunity to talk to to non-christians a fair bit one of the things i discover is that that they don't like this book of rules It makes God look like a control freak. You know, he's a killjoy for one thing, because he's always telling me to stop doing the stuff I like to do, but he's also a control freak, always trying to kind of get me under his thumb, trying to get me to knuckle under and just, you know, submit, and they don't like that. They think, in fact, that's actually a bad thing, and I'll explain a little bit about that, uh, a little more about that in a few minutes. But not only non Christians, Christians sometimes have a problem with the law too. Um, I don't know if you know this, but today is Reformation Sunday. Some of you have, may have heard of this thing called the Reformation. Pretty big deal, actually. 500 years ago, on October 31st anyway, uh, 500 years ago, uh, the Reformation began. It was a time of rediscovering the gospel. This gospel of just, what's called justification by faith, which basically said this, I don't have to earn God's favor by doing good things and living an upright life. I receive God's favor. He loves me based upon what Jesus did for me in his perfect life and in his dying on the cross for my sins. And therefore, these are, Christians sometimes wonder to themselves, like, what's the point of the law now? I'm saved by grace through faith? I don't have to obey to get God to love me. God loves me anyway, even when I'm a sinner, even when I'm doing stuff I'm not supposed to be doing. He still loves me. His love for me is not dependent upon that. So why should I keep these laws anyway? Because frankly, just like non-Christians, half of them I don't like. Come on, be honest, Christians. Half of them you don't like either. So you wonder to yourself, what's the point of the law? What's the the point of obeying the law? Well, that's what we're going to try to think through for a few minutes this morning. We're going to try to understand the place of God's law in our lives and why it's so important. Now, theologians talk about the first, second, and third use of the law. I'm not going in that direction if that's what you're expecting. We talked a little bit about the first use of the law during the time of confession where we said that the law shows us that we're a sinner in need of a Savior. It drives us to Jesus Christ. There are other uses to the law. We're kind of going to be talking about the third use of the law this morning, but really what I want you to think about is, is the goodness of God's law. God's law is good. We look at the Bible and we see it full of rules and we think to ourselves, ah oh, man, why do I have to follow this stuff? And we don't understand God's law is actually really, really, really good. And we're going to hopefully find a motivation to actually obey it because it's all well and good for us to say, oh yeah, God's law is really good, but we have these hearts that still want to do our own thing. So how do we get motivated to actually obey God's law? That's what we're going to do. There is an outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along just to help you, a bit of a road map to help you see where we're going and what the point of all this is. So let's go to work We're starting with point number one, the goodness of the law. And this is the big one. This will take the most time. Look at verse 39 in uh, in your Bible passage. What does it say there? Paul says, or Paul, not even close. Uh, uh, David says this, "Turn uh, Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. The Bible says, God's rules are good. Now, if you're a Christian, you might just sort of, without thinking about it, agree with that. And if you're a non-Christian, you might simply, without thinking, disagree with that. What I would like us to do this morning is think a little bit about it and understand exactly what the implications of this actually is. Notice that David says, your rules are good. Your rules are good. He doesn't just say rules are good. You know, you've got to have rules. If you're going to make it through life, if you're going to play a game, you've got to have rules that sort of uh, uh, govern these things. He doesn't say just any kind of rules are good. He says your rules are good. Now understand something. Today, in our modern context, right now, in our cultural moment here, October, whatever date it is today, 2017, that idea, rules are good, is crazy. People would very heavily disagree with that today. Outback Stakeout says, no rules, just right. Okay? Today, people, secular people in our secular uh, context, they would say rules are not good because rules, what they do is, is they, they, they limit you. Rules stifle you. Rules force you to con- uh, conform. Rules are really just power plays to get control over you. So, you know, when you're a teenager and you're living in your parents' house, you can't wait for the day when you get to move out and you're no longer under mom and dad's rules, you know? Clean your room. Why? Because I said so. What? Make your bed. Why? Why? I'm just going to make it messy again tonight anyway, because I said so. What? I can't wait to get out, and I don't have to live under your rules. In the secular world, in our secular philosophy right now, what we think is, is we think flourishing as a human being means getting rid of rules, getting out from underneath rules, especially Religious rules, especially the rules of God, because God is just trying to control you. And and what you need in order to to actualize yourself as a true, authentic human being is you need to create your own rules. You need to decide for yourself how you ought to live. You need to decide for yourself what is true and what is right and what is good and what is worthwhile. So rules are a bad thing. But here's the thing. One of the things this passage shows us is, is that nobody is ever free from rules. Look at verse 37. David says this. He says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. He, literally what he's saying is, is he's, he says, Basically, stop me from gazing upon these worthless things. And worthless things are sometimes, uh, in other translations, translated idols. But what he says is, is I'm gazing upon these idols. I'm I'm stuck being captivated by these so-called worthless things. And then, a little further down, or sorry, just sorry, not further down, further up, in verse 36, he says lead me, oh, sorry, incline my heart to your testimonies. Now, in, in Scripture, the heart is not just a place where you have emotions, like I love stuff or I hate stuff or I'm depressed or I'm feeling good, that kind of thing. In, 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 um, in the Scripture, the heart refers to not, ju- not just the seat of the emotions, it actually refers to the center of your will, It's the place where your will comes from. It's the sort of the governing center of of all your actions and all your decisions and all your loves, etc. So when he says incline, he says incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. What he's saying is is that my will, my, my default mode of operating is to be selfish is to be captivated by myself, to be controlled by myself. And he is asking God to turn his heart away from that and he's asking God to turn his eyes away from that. In other words, he doesn't have absolute freedom to do whatever he wants. He's controlled by these idols and by this this selfish default mode of operating. He thinks he may be free, or you, sorry, you think you may be free But what David is showing us here is that we are all, all of us, living under something that matters most to us. There is something that matters most to you, and that thing that matters most to you, that has captivated your imagination, that has captivated your heart, that thing, that thing is your God. That thing is your God, and that thing is your lawgiver what I mean by that is that's the thing that governs your life. That's the thing that that directs your decisions and controls your decisions. You may think you're free, but you're not. Now, I could, and I would love to, like, spend the next 30 minutes just unpacking that, but we can't do that because we can't stay here forever. But I can give you just one really great example, I think. Uh, some of you know who Chris Everett is. Chris Everett was a... World-class tennis player. She was a world champion. She's won Wimbledon. She's won the U.S. Open. She was one of the greatest of her generation. She would have been the greatest of her generation, but she came up against Martina Navratilova. So, you know, second best is pretty good. Anyhow, in an interview, talking about her life as a tennis player, listen to what she said. The, or, sorry, talking about her life after tennis, this is what she said. I had no idea who I was. She's retired from tennis. She doesn't play tennis anymore. She says, I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. It made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins. I needed the applause in order to have an identity. Now listen, this is a woman who freely chose, she freely chose to be a tennis player. She decided at some point in her life, I am going to pursue excellence in tennis and go as far along in it as I can. She would never have thought to herself that she had submitted to any law outside of herself. And yet, what does she discover? She's ruled. She's controlled this need to be a tennis champion. Now, you might say to yourself, well, okay, she's a neurotic person. <laughs> That's not me. You might say to yourself, well, I, I rule myself. I am control of myself. I don't let anybody take control over me. I don't submit to anybody, but you've got to understand, when you do that, that means that, that your idol is basically freedom. That's what rules you. And so you will not give up autonomy. You will not, maybe you have a hard time being in relationships because as soon as you're in a relationship, it requires some give and take, and you don't want to give. You only want to take. You won't take responsibility for things. You won't let yourself uh, sit under obligations. The point is you can't escape law. Nobody can escape law. We're all living under law. We're never free from laws. But... Okay, if that's true, what we need to realize then is that that does not mean, however, that all rules and all laws are good. Some rules, some laws that we sit under are bad, right? Look at David again. He, he, he mentions your rules. He keeps saying your laws. He, he says over and over again, your commands. He's not, he's not saying anybody's commands and laws are good. He's saying God's laws and commands are good. And why is that so important? And we get a little help from a philosopher, Catholic philosopher, by the name of Alistair McIntyre. And he wrote a book called After Virtue. It's a phenomenal book. I admit, I have not read it. I'm too dumb to read books like that. But I read smart people who make things simple for people like me. And in this book, he says something very interesting, incredibly insightful. He says, I can't know if something is good until I know what it's for, okay? I can't know if something is good until I know what it's for. Now, think about this. I, let me explain what he's talking about with a very clear illustration. I, uh, I don't live in a very, I don't have a lot of property, so I don't have a lot of space for tools, nor do I have a lot of money to spend on tools, nor am I good at anything that requires tools, so I don't have a lot of tools. I'm not a fixer-upper kind of guy. And so I am very often, when I have to do something, mechanical or fix something around the house, I'm very often using the wrong tool for the job. I don't know. Some of you may relate with this. Uh, So uh, if I have a a bolt uh, or a nut on a bolt that I need to get off and I don't have the right wrench, what do I do? I go and I use a vice grip because I have a vice grip. So what do I do? I put that vice grip on there and I try to unscrew that nut. And, of course, what do I do? I strip it. You strip the nut. Why? Because the vice grip was not made to be used for that purpose. I'm using the wrong tool for the job. So is the vice grip a good wrench? No, it's not a good wrench. It may very well be a very good vice grip when it's being used for the things it's made for, but it's not good at doing the things it's not made for. And what David teaches us here is that purpose matters, okay? Scripture says God teaches us that that he built us he built everything in the universe. He, everything has been created by him and therefore he gave laws that govern every aspect of the universe. There's physical laws, right? There's the law of thermodynamics, there's the law of electromagnetism, there's the law of gravity, there's all these, there's, there's laws of chemistry and they govern the physical realm. But because God is the creator of everything, that means that he is the creator of the spiritual and the moral realm as well. And he's created laws that govern that as well. God's laws aren't arbitrary. When, when David says, your laws are good, he's saying that, that God's specific laws are, are not arbitrarily made. It's not like God is kind of up there. He creates this universe. He creates you and me. And he, and he kind of sits back and he goes, well, yeah, I'm God. You guys are my creatures. Got to have some laws. Got to show you who's boss. Hey, you, don't lie. Hey, you. Be generous. Hey, you, watch what you're doing with your sexuality. He doesn't just sort of throw things out just to kind of prove who's in charge. He's created laws that govern our spiritual moral life as our creator. His laws are good. Why are his laws good as our creator? Well, they're good because they cause us to flourish. Look at verse 37. Uh, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. That's what's good. Look at verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts, in your right, or for in you, no, in your righteousness, sorry, give me life. A little hard to see. There's not great light in this place. Behold, I long for your precepts, in your righteousness, give me Life. God's laws are good because God's laws are life-giving. They vitalize you, they, they energize you, they quicken you, they nourish you, they enable you to, learn, to flourish. God's laws create the environment, create the circumstances in which your life flourishes. If you take I use this illustration all the time, so if you've heard it before, I apologize. It's a really good one, though. You go stand by a stream. Go, go down by the Ogilvy Bridge right now, and you'll see salmon running up the, up Spencer Creek. It's pretty awesome, pretty cool. You, when you watch fish in water, they're alive, right? They're energized. They're vital. They're darting in and out. They're shaking their tails as they push upstream. They're, 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 they're free. But what if you stood by that water and you said, you poor little fishies, I feel bad for you that you are constrained by the river living in water like this. I want to set you free to experience all that the world has to offer. And so you go out in that river and you snag one of those those uh, salmon and you drag it up on shore and you plop it down on the side of the shoreline and you say, be free! What will it do? It will sit there and gape and eventually it will begin to wither and die. And then you see that happening, so you pick it up, and you say, I don't know what's wrong with you, fish, and you drop it back in the water, and it sits there in, a, in, in, a, in the little pool for a bit, and, it, and the water goes through its lungs, and it gets its oxygen back, and then eventually its energy returns to it, and choom, off it goes. And it's returned to life. Why? Because it's living within the constraints that God had created for it to flourish. It was made, it was built to live in water. And therefore, it flourishes when it's in water. When it tries to live outside, or when you try to make it live outside of its constraints, that's when it starts to wither. Well, the same, Scripture teaches, the same is true for us. God's law is meant to give us life People so often, they say, you know, the Bible with its rules, it's a straitjacket. Who is the Bible to tell me who I can and cannot sleep with? Who is the Bible to tell me what I can and cannot do with my money? They hate it. I decide who and when and where to have sex. I decide what to do with my money. I'm the one who's making it. I'm the one who decides to do what to do with my time, whether it's my uh, work time or my, my free time. I'm the one who decides... What to do with my relationships? If I want to be hard-nosed and unforgiving, that's up to me. Well, let's think about this. Let's think about okay, sex, for example. Sexuality is a is a is a a big important thing. It's a, it's a very powerful thing. Uh, it's a it's a it's a profound mysterious aspect of our nature I mean today regardless of where you stand on all kinds of the issues that are going on one thing we can all agree on sex matters our sexuality matters where are you going how are you going to decide what to do with this deep mysterious profound aspect of your nature of who you are Are you're gonna talk to your friends gonna read Cosmo you're gonna listen to the culture Maybe you say no to all of that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be influenced by any of those things. I am going to decide for myself. But did you build you? Did you create your sexuality? God says, look, I, I did create sexuality. I made it an integral part of who you are. I know what it's meant for. I know how it is to be used. If you would submit to my law you would experience a flourishing that you cannot find outside of that because I'm the creator. My laws are good. They are life-giving. Okay, so that's point number one. God's law is good. Here's the thing, though. Uh, We don't listen very well, right? We don't listen very well. I mean... The vast majority of us in the world, particularly in the West, we don't want to submit to God's law. We don't want to obey. Most of us would say, I need to be true to myself. And sometimes myself, my desires, what I know, what I want, deep inside my soul, those things are in direct conflict with what the Bible tells me. And I would be a fool to submit my own personal desires to some im disembodied, invisible being up there who's told me what to do. I would be a fool to do that. Well, I've already tried to explain to you that uh, God's law is good. So maybe now you're saying to yourself, okay, I've heard that, that, that God's laws are good, but here's my problem. I'm afraid to submit, or if you're a Christian, you do believe that God's laws are good, but you find yourself constantly fighting against those laws because you know that deep down inside some of them you really like and many of them you may not like how do you do that how do you get from yes I believe God's law is good to I want to obey God's law and and do God's law and observe God's law in my life we need a motivation And the language of this psalm is very interesting, the way David describes his relationship to the law. For example, in verse 34, he says, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Hmm. There's that heart again. In verse 35, he says, Leads me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. And then in verse 40, he says, Behold, I long... For your precepts. This is all love language. David is describing himself as someone who is is almost, you could say, lovesick for God's law. He wants to know it, he wants to understand it, He he wants to internalize it, he wants to apply it. Look at verse 34 again. He says, Give me understanding that I may keep your law. He doesn't want just behavior modification. You know what behavior modification is, right? That's what parents do to kids. We say, do this. Why? Because I said so. So? Okay, do this or else. That's behavior modification. And David is saying, look, I don't want to just conform to God's law. I don't want to just be knuckling under. There's a place in, another place in the Psalms where it says, do not be like the, the donkey that needs bit and bridle to follow along the way. You know, so you can picture a donkey, you're walking along a path, you're riding your donkey and you're on your way along the path and the donkey goes, ooh, look it, there's something I want to eat. And it goes, and it goes off the path and it's about to eat the grass and then you yank the bridle and it goes, and it goes back onto the path, keeps on going, and then it goes, ooh, look it, there's a little puddle, I want to drink from that puddle, and off it goes, and it's about to drink from the puddle, and you you yank it, and it goes, ow, Ah!" and it just, it follows along the path, and the reason it's following the path is simply because it hurts more to disobey than it does to obey, it doesn't like the punishment, But David doesn't want to follow that way. He wants to love God's law. He wants to be devoted to God's God's law so that he can obey. And this, friends, this is necessary for maturity. You know, when you have little children, there's nothing wrong with saying to your little children, do this, please. And when they say why, you say, because I said so. Kids do need to learn just to obey their parents because of who they are as their parents. That's an important thing. That's fine. But over time, you want to be able to explain to them so that they understand, right? You you say to your child when they're five years old, and they say, "Can can I have a cookie? You say to them, no, you may not have a cookie. And they say, why? And you say, because it'll ruin your supper. And they say, I don't care. And you say, well, do it because I said so. When they're 21 and they're at university or at college and they call you up at 4 o'clock and they say, hey mom, can I have a cookie? You're going to say, oh man, I have failed as a parent. <laughs> You're still asking me? Are you kidding? I thought I taught you that it's good to have a good solid meal at dinner time and you shouldn't ruin your dinner with a sugar rush just beforehand so that you can't eat the actual strong, substantial, nutritious food that is laid out before you at mealtime. Do you want to actually have to explain that to your 21-year-old? No. You want to explain that to them when they're a little older than five, when they're eight, or when they're 12, or when they're 16, so that when they're, they're mature, they make these right decisions without your explanation. Why? Because they understand. Parents, I just want to say this, okay? Listen, I'm, I'm, I am preaching to myself here. I do a lot of just shut up and do it. I admit but I can tell you right now, we live. Let's keep going on the sex thing because that's the illustration I keep going back to today. You just gonna keep telling your kid, Christian parents, don't have sex before marriage. Why? Because the Bible said so. I don't. I don't know if that's gonna. I don't know if that's gonna counter what the world is telling your kids about their sexuality. I don't know if that's a powerful enough, enough argument. Maybe it should be. But if you could actually spend some time with your kid as they get older to explain to them the place of sex in life, why God created it, what the purpose of it is to relationship, the important role it plays in in mirroring and imaging the, the union of two lives to one in a marriage relationship. If you could do that, maybe that vision of the beauty and the majesty of sexuality, maybe that has the power to overwhelm everything the culture wants to tell them. You remember the Just Say No campaign? Any of you old enough for that? Reagan years, you know, Nancy Reagan, wonderful woman, but she had this Just Say No to Drugs campaign? It was an abject failure. Because all you have to do to Just Say No is say, why? And if you don't have an answer after that, you don't have the strength to resist. You want devotion And that's what David wants, and that sounds weird. Affection for God's will. But think about this, okay? When do you feel least constrained by laws? When do you find laws least stifling, least burdensome, most delightful, if I can put it that way? Isn't it when you're in love? Isn't it when you're in love? We just came through wedding season, right? Summer and fall. So you've probably been to one or two weddings maybe this year. And what happens at a wedding? You see this couple, they stand up and they make wedding vows to one another. What do they do? They bind themselves to one another. They they create a rule for their relationship. That's essentially what they're doing. They're saying, I promise to be a certain way. They limit themselves on purpose. Why? Because of their love for one another. Listen to how the Book of Common Prayer, which is like the oldest, well, not the oldest, but one of the oldest sort of descriptions of, of, or one of the oldest uh, types of Christian wedding vows out there. This is what you say when, when you use the Book of Common Prayer. You say, With this ring, I thee wed. With my body, I worship thee. And with all my worldly goods, I endow thee. You constrain yourself. You purposely limit yourself. You give up your autonomy. But does it feel like a tremendous burden? no. You can't wait to do it. Because love is the most liberating constraint imaginable. When you are most in love, you feel most unrestricted. Even though the first thing you give up when you fall in love is your autonomy. That's the first thing you give up. Now, why would we do this with God? Why would we love our lawgiver? Well, there's a place in John chapter 10 where Jesus says this. I came, this is John 10, verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Hear that? Jesus came into this world so that you and I could flourish. That was the whole purpose of his coming into this world. But how did he do it? He had to limit himself. He had to constrain himself. He had to limit himself to being a poor, weak human being like you and me. He had to limit himself to obeying all of God's commands perfectly on our behalf. And then he had to limit himself to being willing to be grabbed and and taken by his haters and by his detractors and stuck to a tree, nailed to a cross, and killed in your place and in my place. Because you see, Christianity doesn't just have a God who lays down the rules. Christianity has a God who submitted to the rules himself. In Galatians chapter 4, it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. As you see Christ dying for you, For your selfish, stubborn heart, you are melted by his love and you are motivated to obey. That's why Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is the natural outflow of someone looking at the cross and saying, I can't believe that you are willing to suffer all of that for me that you would obey for me, that you would give up your life for me, that you would, amazing love, how can it be that you, my Lord, would die for me? When that sinks down into your heart, you cannot help but want to seek his will, delight in it, and obey it with all your heart. And it's not a a duty, it's a delight. There's a guy named William Cowper. Uh, He wrote a, a beautiful hymn. He's written a whole bunch of beautiful hymns. One of them is called Love Constrained to Obedience. And I've got a quote of part of that hymn on the front of the bulletin. I'll just close with those words. He He writes these words, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray. Father, help us to have a love for your law, a willingness to ad- submit to your law, not in order to get anything from you, but because of what you have done for us in Jesus. Oh, we, we think we know best. Help us to realize we don't. Help us to trust your goodness. Help us to cr- trust your will for our lives. And may we experience the joy of that. Do this, we ask in your son's precious name. Amen.